This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. The global COVID cases, 121.3 million deaths, topping 2.68 million. So let's get an update on kind of where we are. Let's bring in Alexander White, Assistant Professor of Sociology and the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Alexander on the phone in Baltimore. Alexander, nice to have you here. It does feel like vaccines are getting out to more people globally, certainly here in the United States at the same time. You know, we still have a lot of cases and we still have areas of the world that are going into lockdown. How do you see kind of where we are when it comes to COVID-19? Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. I think we're, we're at an interesting. I think we're at an interesting inflection point um, with, with the pandemic, where obviously we're seeing large uh, and much higher rates of vaccination, but we're also seeing concerning rises in, in cases. So at this moment, you know, it's very critical that we remain um, masking, we remain social distancing while also um, getting out as many vaccines as possible. Well, and to that point, we have often talked here on Bloomberg about the difficulty in reaching all populations or all populations wanting to take the vaccine. But it does seem like increasingly the story is people want to take the vaccine, but they can't always figure out how to sign up for it, or if they don't have access to the technology to sign up, or they just can't get to a place to get that actual vac- vaccine. How are you seeing that? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, I think that's a very serious concern. You know, in, in the early days of when the vaccine was being rolled out in the United States, especially, the concern was overwhelmingly about vaccine hesitancy, especially in um, Black, Indigenous, and minority populations that um, have historically been... Um, negatively exposed to public health interactions, um, incidences of medical racism, et cetera. What we're seeing now is actually, you know, in, in many ways, the, um, the those initial concerns about vaccine hesitancy are really dropping. And what's much more serious is, is you, you know, as you mentioned, uh, increasing access to the vaccine, increasing accessibility on how to, to access the vaccine, how to um, access technology that allow you to sign up. Um, and and these issues, which are becoming more and more important as we scale up the vaccine delivery across the country. Well, let's talk about this organization that you've been working with, Communivax. Exactly who are they? What are they they setting out to do? Yeah, so um, Communivax is is a national alliance of social scientists, public health experts, and community advocates who seek lasting solutions to this particular serious problem. Uh, As we all know in the United States, Historically underserved, uh, underserved in, in the realm of healthcare, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx populations have endured negative health and economic impacts uh, from COVID from COVID nineteen pandemic at tragic and disproportionate rates. And while these communities could benefit greatly from safe and effective COVID nineteen vaccinations, longstanding biases and barriers hinder their access to, to the vaccine. And you know, our coalition is is strengthening and attempting to strengthen national and local COVID vaccination efforts in the United States by really putting communities of color at the center of these endeavors with the goal of building towards not only the equitable delivery of COVID-19 vaccines around the country, but also a push towards collaborative and equitable public health service 
that place minoritized communities really at the center of decision making. Alexander, is is, you know, Alexander oh, let, me just, yeah. let me just jump in for a second. Is it safe to say that the problem is, because I'm curious how come there isn't the same access to all communities within the United States? And is it kind of similar to great health care? It isn't the same access to all communities of the United States. So there's a bigger, broader problem here. It's not just vaccine distribution, but it, it really digs more deeply into you know, the access to overall great health care here. Exactly, exactly. And it is, it is a bigger, pro- broader problem. And it's something that, you know, we, we take into account very seriously. One, you know, in the United States, we've seen public health funding really decrease um, acutely in the last 20 years, but also really over, the, over a longer period of time, um, such that, you know, as we've, as we've seen, we've been generally unprepared for large scale um, pandemics of, of this sort. And as a result, you know, we've especially seen um, lack of public health support funding uh, and investment in underserved communities that would al- already be um, as a result of you know, systemic, long-term systemic inequalities such as segregation or even out of um, housing situation or broader lack of infrastructure support, really without the um, out access to health care, to public health intervention, and also, you know, as we see uh, most pressingly in this case, uh, a, la- a lack of access to, um, to these vaccines. So it's hey, a critical, critical problem. Hey, just got about 30 seconds here. In terms of the work that you guys are doing at Communivax, do you see that you're making progress in reaching out to these communities to make sure they do have that access to getting the COVID vaccine just quickly? Yeah, we are seeing progress, and I think it's very exciting. Uh, we're, we're working in local communities across the country, and we're amassing not only you know great um, strategies for increasing access, increasing transportation drives and things to, to sites, but also you know, we're seeing ways of really building a collaborative public health care campaign for the future. COVID-19 vaccine um, you know, mission is really only the beginning. Well, good luck with, with all of your work. Uh, great to hear about it. Alexander White, he is Assistant uh, Professor of Sociology and the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Alexander joining us on the phone in Baltimore. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, yeah, it's been a pretty busy week for this next reporter and the venerable Wall Street firm Goldman Sachs. We've got two stories, not one, two stories about Goldman today on the Bloomberg terminal. They are the most read number one and two in the past eight hours on the Bloomberg. Reporting on Goldman, Sri Natarajan. He's our finance reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us uh, on the phone in New York City. You've had a busy week. Well, it's a prominent institution always making news. What can I do, Carol? <laughs> I know, I know. Indeed, indeed. So listen, first of all, let's talk about that move down south to West Palm Beach by Goldman. It feels like it's picking up some momentum and reality to it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you remember back in December, we talked about how Goldman Sachs executives were weighing the option of centering their asset management business uh, somewhere in South Florida. They were looking at offices in between the Miami to Palm Beach corridor. Uh, The idea being you create a new hub and that pretty much sits in line with CEO David Solomon's strategy of moving more jobs into cheaper locales to trim expenses for the bank. Uh, Florida, of course, garners more interest just because this is also the time in our uh, economy, in fact, in New York's economy, if you may, where a number of firms from this experience of remote working over the last year have had serious conversations. And this is a discussion that is happening across 
many boardrooms in corporate America is, do you really need all your employees to be working at a one big central location or prominent cities when you could offer uh, possibly ostensibly a better standard of living in cheaper cities further away from the center? And the experience of remote working, the experience of working uh, almost seamlessly uh, for many of the big firms from disparate locations has, has given rise to this idea uh, to the art of the possible, and they realized that they could move more jobs away from big city centers like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and still function properly and uh, improve their bottom line. So, and this is what, what David Solomon calls, is it high-value cities? Uh, that is uh, that is indeed a very Goldman terminology, <laughs> high-value locations, but it, uh, simply put, it translates to locations that are not uh, as expensive as New York City. Yeah, well, listen, you know, Shri, does it come down to that? It's just about cutting costs or is it is it something more? Because it does feel very much, I feel like the conversations we've been having with you as of late of David Solomon, he calls himself a modern CEO, you know, really kind of remaking Goldman to some extent in his own image, but maybe also for the 21st century. I think one thing that we have to be clear about is this is this idea of moving jobs to high-value locations at Goldman has been underway for about a decade. Okay. Uh, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen places like Salt Lake City in Utah, uh, Dallas uh, in Texas, where, where you've already shifted a number of jobs uh, because Goldman did realize that it could garner benefits from moving jobs there. A lot of their jobs that, uh, especially back office roles in their new consumer operations, are, are centered out of... Uh, Salt Lake City, they've also moved a number of legal compliance and similar roles uh, to places like Dallas. So it is a shift that's been happening. Mm -hmm. But under Solomon, I think Goldman has leaned a little harder into the strategy. You've heard them talk on earnings calls and at conferences that the experience of the pandemic has taught them that they were not giving themselves enough credit for how well they could operate from a varied number of locations. And at the end of the day, if it is going to help with the bottom line, why shy away from it? Yeah, why not, right? Hey, listen, your second most read story on the Bloomberg uh, today has uh, talks about Goldman bankers, Goldman analysts, those first-year analysts begging to work only 80-hour weeks. Basically, they're pushing back. Just got about 35 seconds. What do we need to know about this story? Well, the most important thing you need to know is if I ever beg for saying, please let me work only 80 hours a week, please take me to a back alley and shoot me. But that is the reality of Wall Street. You, you work these big crazy hours for uh, the big bucks. The hope is or the real, it, it clashes against this idea that the softer kind of Wall Street was promoting a better work-life balance. But this, in this past 12 months of crazy banking business, it seems uh, that dream hasn't quite panned out. They just want to shower. They just want to eat, Shree. They're just asking for a little bit of time. Sounds like they just had a kid and they're trying to juggle uh, <laughs> work and life. Yeah, we all can relate to that. All right, Shree, great stuff. Uh, really appreciate it. Shree Natarajan, he's finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Well, this week's cover story is about an essential business during the pandemic that also happens to be the one company in the U.S. that makes a very important thing for COVID tests. And it also is about the two feuding cousins behind the business. The tale told by Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carville. She joins us right here in our Interactive Brokers studio, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. First of all, Joel, I mean, who knew so much was going on behind those very important nasal swabs. That's right. Uh, this is, I think, 
one of my favorite stories that we've published over the last year. Um, I think it's a great untold story of the pandemic, um, which is basically imagine having a business that, um, you know, a year ago, you basically, the world discovers, um, we're going to need a lot more nasal swabs. And you happen to be basically one of two <laughs> companies in the world that makes them. And there's a company called, called Puritan. It's a closely held family company in Maine. Um, at the very outset of the pandemic, we happened to have done a photo shoot, um, basically showing their their operation. And um, Olivia came to us a couple of months later and said, by the way, do you guys know about this epic lawsuit between <laughs> the two uh, cousins who own the business? And we were like, no, tell us more. So Olivia, tell us more. Who are the owners and, and what are they feuding over? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, the owners of Puritan is Timothy Templet and John Cartwright. They're both based up in Maine. This is a family business. It's been around for you know more than 100 years now. And they haven't liked each other for a really long time. One of the most fascinating things about reporting this story is the timing of it all. Like in the lead up to the pandemic, probably two years before COVID really hit or became a household name, they stopped speaking to each other. One of them just walked out of a meeting and refused to have anything to do with the other. And um, they refused to be in the same room, didn't want to talk to each other. And that led to some really big problems inside the company. There was their manufacturing um, equipment wasn't being modernized, they weren't updating their technology, their back office technology system was 20 years old, they hadn't updated their wages um, or given staff salary increases. And then um, three weeks, literally three weeks before the White House called this company to say, we need you to ramp up swab production, one of them filed a lawsuit against the other to dissolve the entire business. All right, and then walks in the government. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And that brought them all together, and they're now happy and living <laughs> happily living, you know, ever after. Well, that's a really interesting part of the story, is that the government was like, we need you to set aside your differences for the good of the country. And they said that they would, but we accessed the legal file, and inside private courtroom sessions, they continued to fight and are still fighting to this day. Which, um, you know, let's let's go ahead and talk about the money here. Um, how much money has the U.S. government put into <laughs> making sure Puritan keeps the swaps coming? Over the past year, they've invested $250 million into the company and plans are underway for another facility in Tennessee. So that's only going to go up. I mean, why don't they get along? And I know in your story you talk about that it might have started as they were kids. I mean, but it's noticeable. Employees know it. And, and it wasn't until, right, the president visited that they were actually seen together. Yeah. I think that they're just both really stubborn. Um, they both have their own vision for how they see the future of the company going. Puritan has actually got a sister business called Hardwood, which started out making minted toothpicks like a hundred years ago and John Cartwright one of the cousins is really heavily involved in the hardwood side of the business and Timothy Templet is involved in the Puritan the medical side and as these two companies had kind of gone in different directions they really felt struggled to kind of work together to see mm -hmm. a future for both of them so you know just two stubborn people who had their own vision and just didn't want to back down. 
Okay, so you got to spend some time in Maine this summer, which made the the reporting like so much greater, um, Carol, just to have yeah. Olivia basically being like pitching the story and then being like, by the way, I'm going to be in Maine for a little <laughs> while. I was like, oh my God, you can't make this up. Amazing. <laughs> so you got to know um, basically everyone in Guilford. So so put us on the that ground That wasn't that hard, like, Joel. There are only 1,500 <laughs> people who live in Guilford. <laughs> Um, so that's so right. tell us about the company and how it fits into to Maine and, and the, the meaning of it all. Yeah, well, Guilford is a tiny town. There is one restaurant there which also serves as the local bar. There's no Starbucks. There's no McDonald's. <laughs> like, very, very small town America. And Hardwood Puritan, or the business, is is the biggest part of the whole town. They mm-hmm. do a lot for the, for the town. They... Um, often put on fireworks shows, they donate playground equipment, they help maintain the local parks. Everyone who lives in Guildford knows the company, has either worked there, had a family member who worked there, or you know knows the owners specifically. Everyone knows where they grew up, they can point out their homes. John Cartwright has quite a big sprawling estate on one of the um, highways heading out of Guildford, and people actually direct you know, make directions based around his home. They're like, oh, take a lift after the, you know, John's yeah. giant white mansion on the corner. So the, the feud between the owners was really, really well known in the town as well. Okay, so you've spent months on this story. What's your favorite uh, uh, detail from all the report, the great reporting that you did? And just have about 30, 35 seconds. Yeah, sure. I, th- I think it was really going through the court documents and seeing just the extent of the fight. They disagreed on everything from the location of the case to delaying the case when the pandemic hit to expediting it to putting it off altogether. And then when Bloomberg filed a motion to access the legal documents, they actually disagreed on how to respond to that as well. One of them said, no, we're going to fight it and push back. And the other said, oh, it's okay, go for it. Like you can access the documents if you want them. So just the extent of their disagreement was unbelievable. All right. I do say this several times, but I do feel like this could be, again, like a Netflix or Amazon series because it's amazing. And what I hear is there's going to be an Olivia Carville Street in Guilford. No, I don't know that. <laughs> I doubt uh, it. <laughs> it's a great story. Um, so much information. And we'll put it out on Twitter. And I highly recommend everybody check it out. Um, Olivia, thank you. Olivia Carville of Bloomberg News, along with Jill Weber of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And gotta say, taking just a leg down in the last hour or so, and we are pretty much at our lows of the session when it comes to those major equity averages. Down 1.5% on the S&P, Dow off half a percent, and the NASDAQ really taking it. Uh, the biggest decliner on a percentage basis down 3% or a decline of 406 points. Let's get into it with Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CIO at IEQ Capital, 
$7.6 billion in assets under management. Joining us once again from Foster City, California. Alan, nice to have you here with Tim and me. So, okay, how do you see like a trade like today where we're seeing more momentum uh, to the downside pickup on the equity trade, particularly the tech trade? And one day after the Fed, where some said, you know, where Jay Powell came out and said, listen, we're going to keep rates low for some time. Hey, uh, Carol and Tim, thanks for having me back on the show. And uh, today is a microcosm of the battle we're going to see in the next three to six months. And it's the battle between rising rates and inflation scares stopping this massive large cap growth rally we've had for many years versus the fact that if inflation is kept under control, you're actually going to have productivity growth, really nice real GDP growth, actually earnings growth better than expected. And that drives stocks higher. So What's really spooking the market is something called the base effect. The next three months, when we talk about inflation, it's going to look like it's going crazy because in March and April and May last year, prices were falling. So when we compare inflation year over year, it's going to look terrible for the next three months. It's going to spook everybody. This tenure is headed to 2%. How soon? The question we have to... Listen, it could be weeks. I mean, this market is Mm -hmm. moving quickly, right? But the short end isn't going anywhere because... Powell's told you it's staying there, if you believe him, three more years, if you believe the futures market, at least two more years. So the curve steepens, but 2% isn't a problem. It's the speed at which this moves. The market can't calibrate quickly enough, right? It has to move in fits and starts. But the the question, Tim, is really, is this inflation going to be tolerable or is it going to get out of control? I will tell you that we still believe it's tolerable. Which is what Jay... uh, Believe it. Which is kind of what Alan J. Powell seemed to say, too. Hang on a second, though, because Tim and I are like, what did he say? Did he say baked effect? What did you say? <laughs> Base effect. Base. I apologize. I okay. Know. Meaning uh, what, yeah, though? So, yeah. So you're comparing year. When you read about what's going on, you compare year over year statistics. If I'm arbitrarily comparing last March, April, and May, when we were in the throes of locking down and prices were falling, right. and now you look at prices this year, we will look like we're speeding up extraordinarily because you're comparing rising prices this year with falling prices last year. By the time we get to July and August, even though prices this year are going up, prices last year were also going up, so the spread will begin to narrow and it will calm down investors that the rate of inflation, again, is moderating. So we have to get past the next three or four months and mm-hmm. see the moderating rate of inflation, which Tim will probably stop long-term rates from going higher and then everyone will chill and say oh apple and now you know apple and microsoft are still solid businesses and they're going to do just fine and let me give you the other irony of all this this is definitely a year where probably value stocks non-large cap tech stocks probably outperform or you know don't do as well the large cap stocks but pre-covid we had a slow grinding economy and Growth stocks, the companies that generate growth, regardless of the economy, outperform in a slow-growing economy. We're going to head right back there when we get through all the sugar hype and the fiscal stimulus. So it's possible a year from now we'll be talking about growth stocks outperforming value stocks again. So what are you telling clients? So what are you telling clients right now? Are just you the, are you telling stay, them essentially the just sit tight for a few months, don't do anything? Yeah, and buy the dip if it comes in because this is going to be – you're going to see real GDP growth. The Fed is saying 6.5%. This, this economy in the U.S. could go up 8 to 10% this year. And if it's really non-inflationary, we're going to have huge earnings outperformance relative to expectations. And 
cash is trash at 0% and bonds don't pay you much. So stay the course. Value stocks are maybe a trade, but ultimately you need balance. Don't throw away the growth stocks. Have both. Don't, you know, stay right. rational, stay diversified. So just quickly, 20 seconds, when you say buy the dip, are you talking about buy the dip of those growth stocks that you like so much? Yeah, but let's be clear about it. These growth stocks are like, you know, wild roller coasters. So don't buy on the first day it's down. Pick mm -hmm. a spot where you can get comfortable and be a long-term investor. Don't think you can day trade these. They're insanely volatile. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, Alan, have a good weekend. Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital, $11.6 in assets under management with us from Foster City, California. But on a day where NASDAQ is a little bit more on sale because it's down about 3%. Hey, he's saying buckle up. <laughs> yeah, but he's longer term. Still yeah. likes those growth names, yeah. right? And sees that's where the momentum will be. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.